Timing is everything. The cliche repeats over and over in my mind as I sit in the back of a tour bus outside 930 Club in Washington, D.C. I'm enjoying the company of Ken Andrews, a dude who clearly knows a lot about music, how to write it, how to produce it, but also about the business, too. And that's a common link between a lot of the veteran independent artists I talk to on the Independent Minded Podcast. Sharing stories about run-ins with major labels, management companies, and promoters. About records collecting dust on a shelf, executed A&R guys, questionable decisions. Some of these tales are gratifying. A lot of them are horrifying. And the horror stories are always the ones that strike close to home. Because I'm a veteran of the business now, too. I've been signed. I've been dropped. I've been lied to, manipulated. I've been rejected, put down. I've been booed and even worse, ignored. I've had philosophical differences with bandmates about work ethic, about style, drug use, professionalism, and a few bad breakups along the way. And in between all that fun stuff, there have been some fleeting moments of glory and more than a few songs that I've written and recorded that I'm still fond of, still proud of. And those are the things you cling on to as you continue to climb the mountain. It's why I'm still making stuff. It's why I do this podcast. That little spark, that lightning bolt, that pride in the work. For Ken Andrews, those feelings are probably 10 times stronger, maybe 100 times, because his ironically named band Failure was, and still is, an influential alternative rock act from Southern California that put out some pretty damn good albums in the mid-90s before taking a decade and a half hiatus. But even after Failure broke up, Ken Andrews never left the business. He just shifted gears, dedicating the second chapter of his musical life to putting his sonic stamp on other artists' creations as a producer and an engineer. And his resume ain't too shabby. You may have heard of Beck, Blink-182, Chris Cornell, Jimmy Eat World, Tenacious D. Ken Andrews has worked with them all. And then, like a lot of artists from the 90s who got rediscovered by another generation of music fans, thanks to the good old internet, failure reunited. And this ain't no cash grab. Ken's all about the work. He's a lifer. And even though he sounds grateful to still be rocking out on stage after all this time, even though Failure put out another solid album last year, Ken sounds slightly exhausted. Because timing is everything. And this is where we are now, in an age of emotional disconnection. For independent artists in the 21st century, there's no free ride, no rocket ship to fame and fortune. Instead, there's technology. People pointing their phones at you at shows, or even worse, checking their Instagram or their text messages while you're pouring your soul out up on stage. Because now, hey, good luck getting someone to listen to your album in its entirety, even though it's out there, for free, for everyone to listen to it. So why the hell is Ken still in the game? We skirt around that subject for episode 95 of the Independent Minded Podcast in the back of the Failure Tour Bus, where Ken's makeshift mixing board is only a few inches from where we sit, and where Ken will likely be stationed after Failure's show as the bus and the band make their way from D.C. to Brooklyn to do it all over again tomorrow. For me, that's what these on-site interviews have become. A history lesson, and a guide for what to do next. And if you're a creative idiot like me, I hope you learned a thing or two about passion and perseverance as well. Ken and I talk about comebacks, the cure, college radio, frogs, nirvana, and a subject near and dear to my heart, hating on hair metal. Let's kick it off with No One Left from Failure's latest album. It's called In the Future, Your Body Will Be the Furthest Thing from Your Mind. Woo. Then my conversation with Ken Andrews right here on Independent Mind. It's Ronnie Dalzo's amazing podcast. It's Ronnie Dalzo's amazing podcast. He's talking to people who make art and music. He's plugging their projects. He's making them famous. He's helping them out just by 
making them talk about all the bullshit that they do. You may hear some uh, some warm noise behind us. I guess the bus is on. The generator is on, yeah. Did you ever get used to the sound? Completely used to the sound. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, when the generator turns off, this is when I wake up. It makes, yeah. Because you can't, like, it's, it's like hearing the it's ocean. It's that white noise <laughs> sound, you know, the baby whoosh sound, kind of. So I was excited to talk to you, Ken Andrews, because when failure kind of made its mark, in the industry, you know, you were signed to Slash, Warner Brothers, a label that I was pretty familiar with because I was a big Faith No More fan back in the 90s. I was kind of trying to make my bones as a musician myself. I was in my, you know, my late teens, early 20s, and Failure was one of those bands that you certainly didn't ride the wave of the grunge scene, but I feel like in a way you were kind of lumped into that scene. 
I was also excited to talk to you because your inner circle is a rogues gallery of musicians and artists that I've kind of looked up to over the years. Everybody from Tool to Chris Cornell, back Justin Melville Johnson, who played with Back End with Nine Inch Nails. Trent Reznor is one of my idols. He worked with Steve Albini, who was a notoriously famous producer from that era. Mm-hmm. Here we are in 2019. You've come all the way back in the sense that you had that success, you had critical acclaim, and then the band went away for a while, and now the band's been back for the past five years. Mm-hmm. Where did you go for 14 years? Failure broke up in 97, and it wasn't a very uh, pleasant breakup. It was not something that we had planned or wanted. You know, Warner Brothers was asking us for another album. We hadn't broken wide open, but we, we were starting to break at the end of Fantastic Planet. You know, it was it was a heartbreaker to have to leave the project behind, but, you know, drugs came in and just basically destroyed our ability to continue. So, you know, I had a bad taste in my mouth from from the breakup of failure. I did two and a half, I would call it two and a half separate projects. One was called On, which was my, um, I guess you would call it electronic solo project. What I found was making an album that was completely different stylistically was a very therapeutic thing for me. I didn't even know if anyone was going to like it. It was something I needed to do. I got four songs that I liked done just in my apartment with a computer and a couple synths that I had bought. And, uh, you know, I started playing them for some of my friends. And a few months later, I had a record deal at Sony and made a whole album of that material and tried to launch it with Sony, but not this exact same story, but basically label issues (laughs) and regime changes. The same old song and dance. The same old song and dance. That one, I would have to say, was it was probably the biggest heartbreak because by the time Sony decided they didn't want to do it anymore, it was already on the radio. It was actually on the West Coast. It was on. It's kind of a mass backwards way to look at it as a label. What happened is it went to college radio first, a song called Soluble Words, and it charted top five for in the first week. And it was like, whoa, this is awesome. And what, when it chart, when you have something that charts that high in CMJ, all the commercial alternative stations find out about it. You're bringing me back. You're yeah. Bringing me back. Right. <laughs> And college music journal for the college uh, music for journal. the 20-somethings that are listening to this. Yeah, it was it was a big deal back then because everyone kind of always thought, you know, you start on college radio and then you graduate to commercial radio. That's right. That's the way it worked back then. A bunch of people at commercial radio heard that song and they were like, this is really cool. It's very forward thinking. We love it. They started playing it. And then the person at Sony who was head of radio and was already really happy had called me at home and said, hey, we're going to get this album. And so like we have all these stations going on it and we haven't even serviced it to them yet. He got fired, you know, not necessarily the end of the world. But what happens is the person who replaces them looks at their plate and goes, well, if I champion this, I'm not going to get credit for it because it's already happening before I came in. Mm-hmm. And so that's. Thieves what and liars 
<laughs> Essentially, that is what happened with that album. Well, during this time, I was an innocent uh, child of college radio. I was the uh, the music and program director of a little dinky college radio station in Brooklyn called WBCR. That's the call letters, Brooklyn College Radio. We were 590 AM on the dial. You could barely get us off campus. But because of my fervor for music and being an independent musician myself, which is kind of one who was just getting started, I just gobbled up music for four years. And Magnified was an album that really um, resonated with me. I remember playing Moth very frequently on my college radio show. And uh, one thing that still resonates with me, however many years later, is the cover of that album, The Frog, mm -hmm. with like the, the skyline behind it. Yeah. What came first, the song frogs? The song frogs, the song frogs. I believe the way that went down was uh, Bob Biggs, the owner and president of Slash Records, was listening to the demos for that album, and he really latched onto the song frogs. And basically, we went to go have a meeting with him about the artwork for the album, and he said, look, I've got your cover. Here's what it is. It's a sculpture of a frog and then like an obviously photoshopped background. What do you think? We hadn't even thought about artwork. We were so focused on the music at that point. We were just kind of like, why don't we just let Bob go with this and see what happens? And I liked it and I didn't like it simultaneously. I didn't know if it really fit the band, but sure. we ended up going with it and Still to this day, the shirts that we sell with frogs are our best-selling shirts. So I guess Bob Biggs knew what he was talking about. <laughs> he knew what he was. Well, he was an art. You know, he was Slash started as a magazine. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, it started as a punk rock magazine in the early '80s, and he was the editor and visual auteur of that magazine. So he was all about artwork and visuals and, and everything. You're from Southern California. Mm -hmm. And yet, as I said earlier, you were kind of maybe unfairly lumped into the grunge scene because your music kind of overlaps that sound, but your first album came out before Nirvana really hit big. Did Nirvana's success affect you in any way, in a good way or a bad way? Did you feel like this is great for failure? Were you ambivalent about it? Or did you feel like we're not like this, we don't want to be kind of lumped into the scene? I think we hoped it would be a positive thing for us because when we first started playing shows in late 89, the scene in Los Angeles was, was still hair metal. So Motley Crue. Yeah, Motley Crue and that, you know, Faster Pussycat and all that kind of stuff. So we were, I mean, a large part of the whole idea of doing this band was to kind of be the antithesis to that. You know, we would just constantly make fun of those guys because we all met through running ads in Music Connection and The Recycler and stuff like that, local papers in L.A. But we would see the same those bands putting together or looking for bass player and stuff, and the, their ads were just like they would never talk about music. They would only talk about must have pro look, pro look. hair, right. <laughs> pro hair. What is pro hair? <laughs> <laughs> we loved Nirvana when we first but we didn't hear of them until we were in the middle of writing the second record. It was just one of those things where that was such a sea change in the world that the focus on their sound became like, how close are you to Nirvana? Are you right. like them or are you not like them? During that period, half of the reviews that we received 
were only about contextualizing us against that. So ultimately, I don't think it was that positive of a thing. Yeah, that's why I'm asking, because I can yeah. see how it could grate on bands from that era who admired it, but didn't necessarily want to be lumped in with it. Right. The band breaks up in 97. Mm -hmm. You became like a full-on producer and engineer mm -hmm. for many years, and you're still doing that now. You basically started producing Failure's albums out of necessity because you weren't happy with how whoever was in the studio with you was doing what they were doing. How was that born? Did you just think, man, I, I know what I'm doing? Or did you always kind of have that tinkering side of you kind of burgeoning and this was your opportunity to really kind of flex your muscles? I would say both. It was a frustration that we felt, especially on the second album, where we would make suggestions or try to guide the process in a certain way and we, got, we would get pushback from people that we just didn't feel like had a strong understanding of what we were going for. And that even happened with Albini too, to a certain extent. I mean, there was more of a kinship there because he and I both agreed on what his best work was when we worked with him. We knew what we were going for with him. The only problem on that record was that we weren't up to his style of producing, which is basically more of a, she's documents what you're, you're able to achieve live in the studio. He wasn't a big fan of doing overdubs. He really resisted it. And I just kept hammering, I'm like, dude, I really want to double some of these guitar parts. Sure. Right. <laughs> Please let me double some of these guitar parts. And he's like, all right, fine. So I went in there and started doubling him. And he's like, all right, fine, you're right. It's, it's better. Okay. Go ahead. But he's, he still had this kind of like more like idea that overdubs are kind of for pussies. <laughs> uh, so it, we had that conflict. So by the time we went to make Magnified, let's, let's make demos that are really show exactly what we want to do in terms of guitar sounds and just the whole, the texture. And when we turned those into the label, they were super excited. In fact, when we turned them in, they were like, let's release this. We think it sounds awesome just the way it is. But the drum machine that we had used to make the demos, because we couldn't afford a, to lock out a rehearsal space and record real drums, we, 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 <laughs> made, all the, yeah, we made all the demos in an, in an apartment bedroom, you know, with just a guitar amp in a closet and a vocal mic. So to us, the drums were placeholder. They sounded foreign and not like a real drum kit, which is what we wanted. So we go into the studio, we record this whole album, we turn that in, Magnified, which is eventually what did get released. But the label still was like, are you sure you want to release that version? Because we still like the demos better. So again, it's like sacrifice. Why can't we have the best of both worlds here? Why can't we have the real drums that we want, but have the vibe that the demos are capturing. So I tell our manager, look, when the third album comes up, I go, look, there's all this technology coming out for home recording right now. Couldn't we go to Slash and say, give us our budget, we'll buy some equipment, rent a house, and basically expand on this whole idea of recording just better demos, basically. And our manager was like, they're never gonna go for it. You guys are 200 grand or 300 grand unrecouped. They're going to want you to work with an experienced producer with a sales track record, or they're going to drop you. All right, they got to make that money back. They got to make their money back. I go, just set up the meeting. Let us try. So we go in for this meeting. I make my five minute pitch. 
to our A&R person and Bob. And Bob cuts me off halfway through and goes, fine, take wow. the money, go do it. And our manager's just like slack jawed, like, what? And he's <laughs> like, I told you, I like the demos better on the last record. Go make those demos a little bit better, and that's what we'll release. Oh, okay. So he literally gave us 50K to buy gear. We bought what amounts to a portable recording studio, rented a house, moved into it for six months, and wrote and recorded Fantastic Planet in one go. Now you're on the other side of it. And by that, I mean artists come to you. They have a vision. Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't like overdubbing. Yeah. How have you taken what you learned being on the artist side of it and brought it into the studio as a producer? Are you flexible in that way? Do you give artists carte blanche? First of all, I try to avoid projects where I think there's going to be a big creative difference. And if they agree, then it's going to be fun. And if they don't agree, then they usually end up going with someone else. Has there ever been like a vetting process that you thought would go well and then you get in the studio and you realize that it wasn't going to turn out the way that you thought it would or, or vice versa? I mean, I definitely had a lot of crises in the studio. Um, <laughs> well, that's an uh, occupational hazard, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, generally not all were caused by creative differences, though. I mean, I think, like I said, a lot of that gets worked out at the beginning. I like to have specific albums to refer to as touchstones, sometimes even my own artist stuff. If I sense that there's someone in a band who is very skilled at being a producer type person, I will make the suggestion all the time, you guys should produce this album on your own and just send it to me to mix. Or I'm just gonna give you some freebie producing ideas like these two songs I don't think are good enough to be on your album. This song is my favorite song. I wish chorus two was longer. Go record it on your own. Your, your demos sound amazing. I have several artists like that that I work with all the time. Let's fast forward to present day failure. I read that five years ago, the band reunited, and it wasn't the first show that you played, but you were inspired to reunite because Maynard James Keenan Atul wanted you to play his 50th birthday party. Yeah, that's not true. That's not true. It's not true. It's Why a is everything I read on the internet not true? <laughs> <laughs> it, it could be. I mean, it, it, it makes for a good story. It makes for a great story. It makes for a great story. <laughs> the reality is that actually kind of interesting, too. The reality was, or it's just a crazy coincidence, basically, is what happened, is that starting in, I would say, 2012, Greg and I started to entertain the idea of doing some kind of reboot of failure. Our friendship had been rekindled because we had both become first-time fathers. Nice. We, we had kids born within six months of each other. So that really brought us back together socially and we started talking about it. Then people were sending us like internet data showing how many times our songs were getting shared and played and stuff and like, you have a new audience that you don't even know about is what people were in the business were telling us. I think it was at the summer of 2013, we decided, okay, fine, we'll book one show and see what happens. And based on that, we'll either decide to do more shows or maybe make a record or something. We don't know, but let's just book one show. Dipping your pinky toe in the water, right? Yeah. So we booked one show 
and it hadn't even gone on sale yet. This all strangely happened in like two weeks. I think it was like October 2013. Maynard, who I hadn't, Maynard from Tool, I hadn't talked to in years, contacts me through LinkedIn. Because <laughs> he has a LinkedIn page as a winemaker. Right, right. He has his own, his own vineyard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did he not have your phone number? Or? No, because, I mean, I think it had been a decade since we had spoken. Oh, man. Okay. And he said, you know, he contacted me and we got on the phone and he's like, we caught up and he's like, so look, what do you think about reforming failure to play this show that I want to do in the spring? And I said, well, yes, yes and yes, because we're actually going to play a show like a month before that because yeah. we just decided to reform. So it was just a coincidence, basically. All right. The name Failure. Yeah. Could there be a more self-deprecating band name? Was that your idea? How did you guys land on that? Well, I kind of hit on this earlier. Like, when we were first starting out, the whole hair metal thing was the dominant pervasive thing in the music scene in the whole country, but especially in Hollywood and L.A. where we were. And again, it, for those guys in those bands, it was all, they were trying to reduce the whole idea of being in a band and having success with it down to things like have professional attitude and must have your own vehicle and must have pro gear and, and all this stuff. So, yeah. and to us, it was ludicrous. So our audience to us informing our band was them. We wanted to freak them out. So we put the exact opposite things in our ads, you know, like the name of the band is failure. You know, that says it, that kind of said it all basically. But then I will say this, once we actually started getting a following in like 1990, then it became a little weird. Like, wait a second, this is ironic. This is getting to be ironic. People are actually paying to come and see us. Now labels are talking to us and, and that's when I thought, okay, if we actually get a recording contract, the first thing that they're going to want to do is change the name. Right. But Bob Biggs was the first one in, and we took a meeting with him, and the first thing he said was, I love the name. You're not going to change the name or I'm not going to sign you. Wow. <laughs> I'm getting to admire Bob Biggs just from this conversation. Yeah, he was a character. So that's the story of the name. Well, we know what failure was a reaction to, the music that you kind of rejected. Yeah. But what got you Jones? Like, what made you pick up a guitar for the first time? What made you want to sing? The records that were touchstones for me early on were British New Wave, The Cure, I would say was probably the biggest influence. Cool. The Cure and Failure, I think, have one thing in common they don't fit into a genre and i really respected that it was like they really have their own mood and kind of vibe and i learned some of the cure songs and i just i just liked how it was um very melodic there was no showing off of musicianship or anything it was all about songs and textures and feelings it truly was the opposite of hair metal <laughs> yeah so they had these two records sort of in their early period that were really dark. Um, one was called Pornography, and the other one's called Faith. Mm -hmm. And those two, I think, from my freshman and sophomore years in college. Oh, so you were in early, before like the disintegration days. Yeah, disintegration, I was already kind of on to other stuff. I like that record, but to me it was, it was all about pornography, and The Top was another album right around mm -hmm. that time. 
those albums still, when I listen to those albums, i just so ahead of their time. Well, speaking of British New Wave, I want to take the opportunity to give you props. You contributed a song to a Depeche Mode tribute album. Yeah. And you covered Enjoy the Silence, yeah. which is arguably their most famous song. Mm -hmm. And you kind of took it to a different place. It kind of resonated with me. And I'm a big Depeche Mode fan. Some of my music has certainly been influenced by Depeche Mode over the years. So I want to take the opportunity to say good on you for, for doing that. Was that another band that you were into when you were young? or? Yeah. Okay. I've always been into Depeche Mode. So that was a cool thing. And the guy who put together that compilation, thankfully, asked us to do it second. So we got to call that song. So you got to pick. From... Yeah, Pumpkins were asked first. And then he came to us and asked us if we would do it. And I said, yes, but I want to enjoy the silence. It was a very eclectic collection of bands, a lot of which that I liked at the time. Deftones, God Lives Underwater was on that mm -hmm. compilation. And he was guys. the manager of God Lives Underwater. The guy who put the compilation yeah. together. You released an album called In the Future, Your Body Will Be the Furthest Thing from Your Mind. That may be the longest album title ever. That came out November of 2018. Yeah. Are you already cooking up some new material? What's next for failure after this tour? No answer for you on that. <laughs> if you could see him, you could see the look of exhaustion on his face. Yeah. It was a lot just to get the album done and mount this tour. For better or for worse, mounting a tour for us is not just a matter of like, oh yeah, let's just go get my couple of guitars and one amp out of the garage and go on tour. It's a lot of pre-production, working on the sounds working with the lighting person and figuring out how we're going to actually perform the songs because we, we like performing as a trio. Our albums sound more like a four-piece kind of. So figuring out w what we're going to play and what we're not going to play and how we're going to do all that stuff, it's, it's kind of involved. New music or not, I've never seen you live. I've been a fan for a very long time. Oh, so wow, I'm very okay. excited to see this tonight. We're on the tour bus, 930 Club, hanging out with Ken Andrews. Ken, thanks so much for the time yeah. and for the wisdom, and I look forward to seeing you play live tonight. Thank you.
was Dark Speed by Failure. Earlier in the podcast, we heard No One Left. Find out more. Get the goods. It's all at failureband.com. Big thanks to Ken for the time and the conversation. The fine folks at 930 Club for letting me haunt their hallways once again. And Monica at Speakeasy PR for connecting me with another fantastic artist. And big ups to you, loyal listener. (laughs) Thanks for riding along as we travel together towards the elusive episode 100. If you like what you hear, follow, subscribe, leave a gushing review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, follow on social at Bald Freak Music, and get all the latest on the podcast and my musical misadventures at baldfreak.com. Next time on Independent Minded, I hang backstage at the Rock and Roll Hotel with indie pop band Francis Cohn, where I soon discover that no one is named Francis and it's not really a hotel. Is there ice cream at least? Tune in next time. The only good thing about being wounded in the buttocks is the ice cream. That gave me all the ice cream I could eat. And guess what? A good friend of mine was in the bed right next door. Lieutenant Dane, I got you some ice cream. Lieutenant Dane, ice cream. <laughs>